I've got some Sarah Rudin to bring you today. Uh, and it looks like Sarah Rudin's going to speak right here on our stage on February 13th. It's not all set up, but it's uh, it's looking pretty good. So um, I want to begin by saying Christmas is great. I love it. But I do have two minor Grinchy sounding things to say about Christmas, but it's for a good cause. Interpreting Mary's prophetic utterance in Luke chapter one, when she's visiting her relative uh, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and she busts into a prophecy that becomes known as the Magnificat. Uh, so when it comes to interpreting Mary as a prophet, a couple of our Christmas lenses uh, get in the way. One is the domesticating lens of Christmas as a birthday celebration for Jesus. So as far as I know, there are only two examples of in scripture of a birthday celebration and they're both bad uh pharaoh uh pharaoh's birthday celebration is mentioned and also herod's so herod's birthday celebration you might recall involved the drunken birthday boy decapitating john the baptist as a party favor maybe this is why the church didn't start celebrating the birth of jesus until i think about the fifth century um, apparently in ancient judaism birthday celebrations were associated with villains, uh, not with heroes. The, the second maybe distorting lens that comes along with Christmas is, uh, is the common portrayal of Mary as the paragon of a submissive woman. So the proof texts for this are, let it be done to me according to your word. Um, that's in um, Luke or Matthew or both. Um, and Mary treasured these things in her heart. Um, but, but why is it when Abraham or Moses or Elijah or Isaiah submit to God, it makes them fearless, but when Mary does it, it makes her quietly submissive? I think we, I think we know why. So setting these two lenses aside, we'll look at Sarah Rudin's rendering of the Magnificat, um, and uh, her translation begins, and Miriam said. So uh, Sarah Rudin sticks with the original rendering of names and places in her translation, which um, I, I found that a little imposing or annoying at first when I started reading through it, um, because I couldn't pronounce the words inside my head, <laughs> like John is spelled I-O-A-N-N-E-S with the line over the O and the E. I don't even know what that line over letters is called. It's not an umlaut, it's something. Uh, or Jerusalem is spelled H-I-E-R-O-S-A-L-U-M-A. -E -A. Don't know how to pronounce that. Um, so Rudin actually has a reference guide at the beginning of her translation, and it's titled, rather uh, intimidatingly, Unfamiliar Transliterations of Important Proper Names in the Greek Text. So though I felt stupid running into these words and therefore annoyed, I, I realized actually this was a very strategic thing that Sarah Rudin did. It's actually quite helpful because it reminds me when I'm reading uh, these, what are now for me familiar texts, the Gospels, that they weren't written to me. Um, they were written to Greek-speaking ancient Jewish people. Um, you know, uh, Greek was like the, the primary language uh, even for, for people in the land of Israel and certainly for people in the diaspora who were living uh, elsewhere in the Roman Empire at the time. So, so when I read these words with funny spellings and different pronunciations, I, it reminds me I'm entering a foreign to me culture. 
So I really have to stop assuming I know stuff I don't. So that, that actually is the beginning of wisdom for reading the Bible. So Miriam for Mary is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Miriam, which was her real name. So this, this opens up a whole new world of meaning. So the original Miriam was the sister of Moses and known as one of the three great leaders of Israel in the time of the deliverance from Egypt. That's from the Talmud. Three great leaders led Israel, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And that's based on the Micah um, portion that Noah read today, uh, saying essentially the same thing. And, it, and it's not just that the mother of Jesus shared Miriam's name, but their life stories mirror each other. So both were powerful prophets. The first Miriam was uh, regarded as one of the seven female prophets in the Hebrew Bible. They would include Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Huldah, Abigail, and Esther, covering basically every major phase in Israel's ancient past. And both Miriams were powerful protectors. So Miriam protected the infant Moses when he was left in a basket in the Nile. Um, she arranged actually to have Moses' mother hired as his wet nurse when Pharaoh's daughter rescued and adopted uh, Moses. And in the Christian tradition, Joseph is like, the, you know, celebrated as the great protector of Jesus. But in the Jewish tradition, Miriam is the protector of infant Moses. And by calling Mary, Mary by her real name, Miriam, we see her as the protector as much as we do Joseph. So she's like the mama bear who protected the infant Jesus from Herod by fleeing as an immigrant to Egypt, just as in Exodus, we first meet Miriam fleeing from Pharaoh. And there's also the Egypt connection there. Also, both Miriams had significant um, positive interfaith relations. I wish Susan King were here uh, this morning because she uh, got her seminary degree in interfaith uh, relations, I think from Oxford, and she was the um, co-director of the Interfaith Roundtable here in Ann Arbor for many years. But um, Mary, uh, you know, the Miriam Mary and the Miriam Miriam both had uh, very positive interfaith relations. So Miriam, the mother, uh, the sister of Moses, learned from her brother's father-in-law, um, I have Joseph in my notes, but it's not Joseph. It's it's what it's it's. Um, oh, somebody put it in the chat. I forgot the guy's name. Uh, he was uh, Jethro. That's it. Uh, Jethro. He was a Midianite uh, priest, and he actually had quite an influence on uh, on the people of Israel in the Book of Exodus in many different ways. Uh, Zipporah was his daughter. He she was the wife of. Moses, she came to Moses' rescue at one time. So very positive interfaith relations there in the book of uh, Exodus. Um, Miriam, the mother of Jesus, also had positive interfaith relations. She was, remember, visited by the sages uh, from the East who were probably astrologers, astrologer philosophers. And uh, so, you know, contrary to conservative Christian mythology, Israel had a long history of positive interfaith 
relations. I mean, basically everything in Israel's worship had some interfaith connection. I mean, they were learning about, about priesthood and sacrifice and temples and purity codes. Those were all things that were developed in the uh, ancient Near Eastern religions they were familiar with. They did twists on them, but they were participating in kind of the common um, language of religious life in that period all around them. So um, also another parallel is um, both Miriams had a very argumentative side. So one Miriam challenged Moses, uh, another challenged the adult Jesus. So both had open conflict with their famous family members. Uh, neither one practiced keep your mouth shut submission, in other words. So now we're ready for the Magnificat. And I'm hearing, <laughs> I'm hearing my wife, uh, Julia, she's having uh, online church today here singing in the background, but I think my Zoom sound uh, filters that out, but it's kind of fun to listen to it out of my right ear here. So we're ready for the Magnificat in the Sarah Rudin translation. And Miriam said, all my being exalts the Lord and my life breath has delighted in my rescuer, for he's looked on his slave's lowliness. So look, from now on, all generations will call me happy, or blessed is the traditional translation, because the one with power had done great things for me, and his name is holy, and his mercy lasts from generation to generation of those who hold him in awe. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered those with an arrogant spirit in their hearts. He's taken the rulers down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's come to the aid of Israel, his servant, keeping mercy in mind, just as he promised to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed for an endless age. So the pietistic... Uh, gospel of American Christianity that many of us are very familiar with is all about forgiveness of individual sins. Like that's like the whole point. And, and it's like, however small the sins, it's almost like the smaller, um, um, the better as though forgiveness runs contrary to God's nature. And Jesus had to pull it out of him like a dentist pulling teeth. But so thank God for Jesus. Um, but Miriam's gospel is about arrogant rulers being scattered, thrown off their thrones, the lowly being exalted, and the wealthy wicked getting their just desserts. So this is echoed in Zechariah's prophetic utterance right after this. He was, uh, you know, also a relative of uh, Miriam's, of Mary's, as we call her. Um, and that prophetic utterance, which is also in Luke chapter 1, following the Magnificat, is a kind of midrash or interpretation of Miriam's prophecy. So Zechariah's prophecy puts the focus on salvation as deliverance from the mob, from the violence and hostility of the powerful, rescue from our enemies and the hands of all who hate us, are the words. So that's one thing. And another about the Magnificat is Miriam's full-throated embrace of her blessing. So remember uh, earlier in Luke chapter one, the messenger, the angel had said to Miriam, blessed art thou among women. And here Miriam takes hold of her blessing and she proclaims it. So look, she begins, 
that's a rhetorical attention grabber for a prophet. Um, actually, in this case, I think the old English conveys it a little better. It's behold. Um, you know, like uh, Luke has, uh, the word look has been kind of uh, cheapened um, by cable news. You know, <laughs> the same guests are being interviewed over and over about the same things. And half the time, when the guests or the experts answer these questions um, with observations already made by others, because that's all that's going on in cable news, the same three stories talked about over and over. And often, mind-numbingly often, the guest expert leads with the attention grabber, look. They go like, look, blah, 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 look. Miriam is not using look in that overused way. Miriam is a prophet, like her namesake was a prophet, and her look is the prophetic, you know, behold. And this is the part I like. She's not submissively deflecting attention away from herself with her look, with her behold. The, the feminine ideal of patriarchy, of course, is the woman who always deflects attention away from herself. Um, you know, so you like if you're a woman on a staff, you know, the way to get your idea, um, you know, to be taken seriously is to it's your idea, but you credit some some man in the in the company and then, you know, you're allowed to say it is kind of the thing. But but Miriam is drawing attention to herself. Miriam is embracing her blessing and she's owning it. So look, from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the one with power has done great things for me. She's not even saying, the angel told me all generations will call me blessed. That, that was like a private revelation. No one heard that. That was for her ears only in the Magnificat. She's owning it without ascribing it to an angel. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. So, Miriam's version of the good news is one that she knows will not be universally welcomed. And that's clear in her prophecy because her, her version of good news is a threat to those who benefit from the corrupt ways any given society is structured. So any attempts to deal with the corruption are naturally resisted fiercely. So, you know, why is it that women in any position of power that involve, especially it involves speaking, um, public speaking, come under intense scrutiny over how they look, how they dress, their hair, you know, their um, outfits, and especially how they, how they talk, meaning like how they actually um, formulate um, the words. Because women embracing their blessing or taking their power are a threat to the existing order and those who benefit from it. So I, I know there are um, things about the Roman Catholic vision of Mary or doctrines um, regarding Mary that are, that are uh, easy to see as problematic. Um, you know, Mary is ever virgin, like, like she's a founding nun but I also wonder how much of the Protestant objection to the Catholic emphasis on Mary. And, you know, I, I participated in this, you know, <laughs> back in the day. I wonder how much of that objection to the Catholic emphasis on Mary isn't just a reaction to the elevation of a woman. 
Corruption is always evidenced by a fierce resistance to the elevation or the amplification of anyone who is muted or rendered invisible by the prevailing power distribution algorithms. Um, so Black Lives Matter faces such fierce resistance, not only because of white supremacy, but because its founders are black women, women embracing their divine power, their blessing, taking it, owning it, and asserting it. And this is what Miriam is doing right here. So look, from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the one with power has done great things for me. So personally, I think there's plenty of Christ in Christmas, and um, let's make some more room for Miriam. So um, for our meditation today, um, we're going to hear uh, one of the one of the offerings that we had for our Christmas Eve service. If you missed it, you're going to hear it again. It's um, Abby. Oh, Abigail. Abby is an Abigail, right? Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, she is one of the seven female prophets of uh, of Israel. Um, and her dad, Daryl, are going to do um, do a lovely flute piano duet for us. So just um, sit back, relax, you know, take a few cleansing, you know, relaxing breaths and put your focus on this beautiful music for our meditation time. <laughs> 